let's, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 13. All right. <clears throat> therefore, okay, therefore, remember, what's it there for? What happened before? It says, uh, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, so again, talking about the people in the wilderness, they did not enter the promised land because they did not believe. So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now you're going to notice in this passage, maybe you picked up on it, there's one word that keeps showing up time and time again, and it's the word rest. Did you catch that? It shows up in verse 1. In verse 3, the word shows up twice. It's mentioned in verse 4, it's mentioned in verse 5, and in verse 6, and in verse 7, and in verse 8, and in verse 9, and in verse 10, and 11. Almost every single verse has the word rest or a reference to the word rest. And it says at the beginning of the chapter, this promise of entering rest still stands before us. So he uses the illustration of the Old Testament Israelites going toward the rest of the promised land, that rest. But he says, but there's still a rest for us. Right? There's still something ahead of us. We're on a journey just like they were, and we're traveling toward a rest, a destination. And the question that he's asking is, are, are you there yet? Have you reached it? No, you haven't. Okay. And so since we're not there yet, here's some things that we need to do, and he's going to, to, to exhort us in that way. A long road trip isn't complete without hearing the question, are we there yet? at least two dozen times in the car, right? Are we there yet? I just tell my kids every single time they ask, I just tell them two more minutes every time, no matter how far away we are. Um, keep, keep some quiet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. They're like, what is time? I don't even know anymore. Um, and, but what makes a long road trip bearable, apart from, you know, snacks or movies or games, is the anticipation of the destination, okay, right? If you hate the destination that you're going to, then the road trip is a little less enjoyable, right? But if it's something that you want to go to, I don't know, 
the wild, the wilds. Well, that's a long road trip. <laughs> uh, Disneyland. Disney, I don't, I've never been to Disneyland, so I don't know if it's worth going or not. It's too expensive. Um, but the destination makes a big difference. And in our, in our Hebrew study, we've been looking at a passage of Scripture that points back to another road trip of sorts. The Exodus journey to the Promised Land. And, and the author has been using Psalm 95 to give us this important warning. And last time we learned there are many who were along for the ride but had not bought in to the message, right? They had hearts of unbelief. They didn't believe God would fulfill his promises or that God had their good in mind. And as a result, they were punished and they did not receive the promised land. And in chapter four, he continues with that and he gives us two more important warnings. And he continues with this illustration to remind us, again, that there are those who publicly profess faith, but don't personally possess faith. There are those who publicly profess, but don't personally possess saving faith. We've seen how this connects with our previous passage. We've we've noticed the use of rest time and time again in our passage. Um, What's he telling us here? How is he using the concept of rest to warn us to make sure, again, do you believe? Have you embraced it? Um, well, we're going to look and see what, what, what this means. But let's start off by talking about what's the meaning of rest? Why, how is he using this term here? Because it's kind of confusing. Honestly, if we just, as we just read through that passage, you might be reading through those verses and thinking, what? What's, like, this is kind of confusing. He keeps quoting all these random verses, talking about rest and Sabbath rest and the seventh day of creation and all these things. What's going on here? Well, this is Bible study, right? This is, this is what we're doing. We're studying the Bible. We're looking at repeated themes and ideas, asking questions of the text. So let's ask questions. The word rest or concept of rest shows up in every single verse. What's it talking about? What's it mean? Well, we see that that in our passage, he uses this term in a lot of different ways. Here's some of the ways that he mentions, uses the the word rest for. He talks about the promised land in verse 3. That should be obvious, the the, the future rest for the the people wandering in the wilderness. Verse 4, he alludes to rest as to the seventh day of creation. Right? Um, Verse 4 says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he uses rest for promised land. He uses rest to refer to the seventh day of creation. Um, He quotes Psalm 95, which is written by King David, and King David speaks of a rest. So so this is something that King David could write to the people in his time and say there is a rest for you too. Okay? It's referred to in verses 9 and 10 as Jesus' rest from the work of redemption. That he ceased from his works as, as God did from, from his. So, so it's used multiple different ways and in different contexts. So it's not, it's not meant to be understood in one narrow sense. Um, it's in, for example, it's not meant to be understood just in terms of the promised land. Because look in verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's saying, don't, don't think of it just in terms of the promised land, because there's another rest. There's, there's something beyond, there's something for us. Verse 1 says, The promise of entering his rest still, still stands for us. He uses the nation of Israel as this illustration. He uses rest as a summary statement to mean something. And we know, according to this passage, that we have a rest ahead of us. It's in the future. 
There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So what is this rest? Well, I think you could say it this way, and I don't have this on the screen, so, so maybe write this down. When you, when you see the term rest in this passage, think of it in terms of a summary statement for everything we have been promised in Christ. Okay? A summary statement for everything we have been promised in Christ. This is a promise for us. It says, the rest still stands. It's ahead of you. You who profess faith in Christ, you have a promised future. We have been given exceeding great and precious promises. And those promises are going to be culminated in the future resurrection, the eternal kingdom, where we enjoy the very presence of God and resting from all our works. And and this passage does seem to indicate this is something in our future. This is something ahead of us. We experience the blessings now. We we, we experience the blessing of salvation, of of sanctification, of all these things. But we haven't possessed everything yet. There's still a destination ahead of us. It's a future rest. We're not there yet. We're on our way. We're on a journey. And God has given us this promise. And because we have this promise, because you as a professing believer have this destination ahead of you, this promised rest, this, this future resurrection, this hope that lies before you, he gives us two serious commands, okay? Let's see if we can find them. Look in verse 1. Here's the first one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, what are we supposed to do? Let us fear. Fear what? Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So the first command he gives us, because there's a rest in front of you, fear. That does, what? That doesn't seem to connect. I thought you may say something like hope, um, rejoice. No, fear. Okay, we'll we'll have to talk about that. And then, verse 11, near the end of our passage, is a second command, the second warning. Because there is a promised rest ahead of us, because God has so much laying ahead of us that he has promised to those who, who believe in him, verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here are the two commands. Because we're not there yet, you need to fear and you need to strive. So let's, let's dig into those, okay? First of all, you're not there yet, so continue your journey with fear. Again, this is a a strange word to use. We don't usually use the term fear to describe how we should live the Christian life unless we're talking about fear of God, right? But that's not what this passage is talking about. This is not talking about fear of God, okay? He's telling us to fear something else. Well, let's ask the question, what does it mean to fear? What does it mean to fear? Passages, questions like this, or ideas like this of of fearing, um, while it's it's straightforward, it's not hard to understand, um, passages like this can really make us worry. Is it saying that even though I've been saved, I can still fail to reach heaven? Is this saying I can lose my salvation, so I should be afraid, I should fear? Well, we, we addressed this worry in our last lesson, but I think it's worth addressing again in this passage. What's the command for us in this passage to fear? So what does it mean to fear? 
Let's, let's answer that question first. Let's, let's define it, right? To fear means to be, in this, in this case, being apprehensive. You're like, okay. What does apprehensive mean? That doesn't help me out. What does apprehensive mean? If you describe someone as apprehensive... Was, <laughs> Rachel, when someone tries to take her food. That's a great picture. Yeah. So if you're apprehensive and you're afraid that someone's going to take your food... Describe yourself. What, like, apprehensive. Good. So maybe you could say it this way: a concern that something bad might happen. That's what apprehensive means. Someone took my food. Okay. And this is saying because you have a promised rest ahead of you, because you have the future promise of heaven, of the resurrection, of eternal life, all those things ahead of you, be apprehensive. Be afraid. Be afraid that a concern, have a concern that something bad might happen. Okay, this doesn't sound like hope, joy, peace. <laughs> what is he talking about here? Um, have you ever met someone who has a lot of confidence about something, yes. but shouldn't? Someone who's overconfident in something that they should not be confident about. Yeah? Like, they think maybe they've got it all figured out, and you're looking at it, and you're like, you don't have it all figured out, man. You, the best thing you can do right now is have a little bit more hesitancy about the situation because you don't know what you're talking about. You know what I, you know what I mean by that? Um, you know, I have a, I have a one-year-old, right? My, my one-year-old will stand up in his high chair very confidently. He just stands up. He'll, I, was, I was feeding him oatmeal this morning, and he was, he, I didn't buckle him in. And he, I look over, and he's standing up in his seat, which is like, you know, it's like this high, right? And then he stands up on the tray like this, and he's just like, woohoo, you know? No big deal. Confident. He has no concern of, of, of gravity. He has no concept of it. He's just like, I'm good, you know? He doesn't recognize the very real danger of the position that he's in. Or you think of the rhyme like, uh, you know, um, the five little monkeys, right? Five little monkeys jumping on the bed. Great book, story, whatever, rhyme. And they're all jumping on the bed. They're having a great time. And they keep falling off and bumping their head, right? They have this confidence that nothing bad will happen. And as a result, they just keep on hurting themselves. They keep on falling off and bumping their heads. And when someone has a false confidence... In a false reality, the most loving advice for them is to tell them to realize the danger. Okay? So if you're walking near a cliff really confidently, my message to you is not going to be, go for it, man, you're doing awesome. No, I'd be like, hey, there's a cliff. Look below. Yeah, like, get a little apprehensive. Have a concern that something bad might happen. So you don't fall off the cliff. Does that make sense? So, what does it mean to fear? It says, it needs to be, and I gave away the answer to the next question because I, I got my slides out of order. What are we supposed to fear? If, for you eagle-eyed people and saw the point. What? Unbelief. unbelief. This passage says, we should be afraid of unbelief. Now again, this needs to have some explanation as well. So, but, but just to summarize our last point here. For those who are reading this letter, the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and they had an evil, unbelieving heart. He's talking to a group of people, a church, 
that has some genuine believers and some ungenuine believers, some people who profess faith but don't possess faith. But does, does the writer know who is who? No, he doesn't, right? He's, he's he just, just, you know, like, as, I, as I speak to you, could, it be, could there be some of you that, pos- that profess faith but don't possess it? That's always a possibility. Do I know who that is? No. Okay? So he's saying to this group, you guys need to, you guys need to fear. You need to, you need to take this seriously. Because those that have an evil, unbelieving heart, they have no reason to be confident that they would enter God's rest. They needed to fear. They need to look at the possibility of something hap- bad happening to them. What are they supposed to fear? He's not talking about fear of God in this passage. He's telling us to have a healthy fear of something that is mentioned in this passage. And that, that, that thing that we are supposed to fear is unbelief. Let's, let's, let's see if we can uh, prove that. Okay, uh, Back up to chapter 4. Beginning of verse 1, and then right before that, we saw this, that the people in the wilderness, they did not enter because of unbelief. So, fear, okay? It's connected to, fear is connected to unbelief. If you look in verses of chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, it says, For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So, in other words, the gospel, the good news was received, but it did not profit those who had unbelieving hearts. But on the contrary, those who have believed, verse 3, look in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. Those who believe in Christ enter the rest, receive the promises. Those who do not believe do not enter the rest. It's really simple. The contrast is between unbelief and belief. And just to drill it home, let's look down at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's the same sort of disobedience? An evil, unbelieving heart. That's, that's what we should, we need to take care, brothers, Hebrews 3.12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So the disobedience that they were guilty of was unbelief. This is what we are to fear. Fear a heart that rejects Jesus Christ. Again, remember, he's, he's talking to a mixed group of people here. Some are genuinely saved, while others are just along for the ride. He doesn't know who is who, so he gives a serious warning to the whole group. Fear. Just because you're along for the ride doesn't mean you'll make it to the destination. Some of you truly don't believe. And so you need to take your journey seriously. You need to look and consider, do I have an evil, unbelieving heart or am I just cruising? His advice to the whole group is fear. Lest any of you, who should, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So fear, fear, just in case there are some of you who actually don't believe in Jesus. Fear in an, fear an evil, unbelieving heart. Okay, that was a lot. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Um, think of it this way. When, when we talk about assurance of salvation, <clears throat> and you say, you know, how do you get assurance of your salvation? Where do you usually look? Back or ahead? Usually look back, right? Back at the time when you accepted Christ as an assurance of your salvation. But you know that assurance also comes from looking forward? 
the, the, the future promises. Think of the parable of the soils that Jesus tells in the Gospels. Let's, 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 let's look at this real quick. All right, sorry. Whoop. Oh, I, one important point I want to mention before I jump ahead to this, because this is very important. Let's make the distinction. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how to deal with doubt on Wednesday night. And, and we talked about how that's not, you know, a genuine believer can doubt. Let's make the distinction. We're not talking about doubt here. I'm not saying you should fear doubt. I'm not saying you should fear having a, a doubt in your heart that you want, need an answer to. You should pursue that. You should seek those answers. We should fear unbelief, but we shouldn't fear doubt. When we talk about unbelief, we're not talking about having questions that need answered. A heart of unbelief is a heart that rejects what God says and rejects God's goodness in exchange for your own goodness and desire. So don't be afraid of doubt, but fear a heart that rejects Jesus and his promises. Because if you reject his promises, you don't receive the promises. It's as simple as that. If you have a heart that rejects the promises of God, that means you don't have a redeemed heart and you won't receive those promises. It's really simple. So you need to fear. Now back to what we were saying before, the parable of the soils. Mark 4, 16-17, says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. You know the story. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. But they endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Is this talking about someone who was genuinely saved and then lost their faith? No. It's talking about someone who received the word, maybe made a profession of faith. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Receive it with joy. But they have no root. They they profess faith, but they don't possess faith. And when they realize this is tough, being a Christian is hard, there's persecution, they throw it away. Or when you talk about the the seed among the, the thorns, there are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, if you were to talk to one of these plants in the uh, rocky soil or the thorny soil and you found out that this little plant was struggling with the assurance of salvation, would you tell him, well, look back in time at the day when the seed first fell on your soil. Did it fall on your soil? Did you hear it? Yeah, I received it with joy. Is that where he should look for his assurance of salvation? No, because, yeah, he received, yeah the, the seed came, but it didn't profit him, did it? Just as it says in, in chapter 4, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. It's not enough just to look back at the time you prayed a prayer for your assurance of salvation. People can make a, say a prayer and not actually possess faith. You also, as you look for, for, for assurance of salvation, you also need to look ahead. Where am I placing my faith? Not just where did I place my faith. Where am I? What do I believe? You know what? If I were to look back in my personal testimony, I cannot point to a day, a, a date, a time of day, all these situations that surround the time that I asked Christ to save me. I can't give you all the details about the time when the seed fell on the soil of my heart. So if that's where the source of my assurance is, I have no assurance. But according to this passage, what is is the source of assurance? It is looking 
ahead to the hope that we have in Christ? Do I embrace his promises? If we have no desire for Christ and what he has promised, then we have no assurance and we should fear. We should consider, do I, we should consider, do I possess faith? And then quickly, the passage also tells us you're not there yet, so continue your journey with determination. In verse 11, we, are, we find our second command, because there's rest in front of us, let us strive to enter that rest. Strive means making every effort or taking pains to pursue. In other words, in the, in the words of the famous philosopher Dory, it means just keep swimming, right? Or if we adjust to our conversation in which those who believe enter the rest and those who have an unbelieving heart do not enter that rest, then just keep believing, or don't stop believing. Um, but I'm not going to sing the song. Um, just keep believing. Keep your eyes on Christ. Strive to enter the rest. And this isn't saying keep working to earn your salvation. That's not what it's saying. If Christ has given you a believing heart by faith, if he has redeemed you, then that's a heart that will continue believing. You're not there yet. So don't stop. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And later on in Hebrews 11 we see examples of what that looks like. If you know Hebrews 11, that's the, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith. All these people who show us what faith looks like and what does saving faith look like. So says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, okay, people who profess faith and actually possess it, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Just like the people in the wilderness who didn't believe in the promises, didn't believe in in God, wanted to go back to Egypt, right? Take us back there. That's where their heart was. They were along for the ride, but they did not believe the message. But as it is, these people who truly possess faith, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Where is the heart of unbelief in this passage? It's right here. Right? No desire. No looking ahead. No focus on Christ whatsoever. They've professed it. Sure, yeah, I'm a Christian. Whatever. But they have no eyes toward the prize. They have no desire for Christ or his promises. But those who actually possess faith, who have placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Here is what true faith in Christ is not. Okay, listen to this really carefully. This is what true faith is not. It's not depending on a prayer you recited, but then caring, but not caring at all about Christ or his word. Do you know that's not saving faith? Depending on a prayer you recited, but having zero care about Christ and his word. Why is that not saving faith? Because when Christ saves you, he redeems your heart. He makes you new. He gives you a believing heart. And he gives you a believing heart that keeps on believing. And if you have been given that heart, what would your life look like? It would look like a life that's striving to enter the future rest that God has promised Skip ahead a couple chapters in Hebrews and look at Hebrews chapter 6. And this verse sums it up so beautifully. 
Strive to enter that rest. Hebrews 6, verse 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That's the exact same Greek word as the word strive. Strive to enter the rest. Show the same earnestness to have what? The full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is what saving faith looks like. It's those that with earnestness, having full assurance of hope until the end, not sluggish, not a heart that could care less, but a heart that continues to trust, continues to believe. This is what saving faith looks like. Just keep swimming. Just keep trusting. Just keep believing. Why is that what saving faith looks like? Because what's the alternative? Do you think a saving, a heart of save, a heart that's been saved would be a heart that would just stop believing, accept the gift, and then just relax and enjoy life? That's not what a heart that's been made new looks like. And look what it says in Hebrews 6. Full assurance comes as you show that earnestness of belief. You know, if you're doubting your salvation, where do you look? You look ahead. You look up. You look to Jesus. 1 John says, our hearts may condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. You know, we often doubt our salvation when we're struggling with sin or lazy in our faith. And in those moments, where should we look? We look toward the promise ahead of us. We look to the promises. And we we, we embrace Christ and say, Christ, my hope is in you, not in me. Not my ability to, 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 to do right or to, do, do, to be perfect, but, but on you. And so I'm striving to enter that rest. I'm keeping my eyes on you. I'm not there yet. So we need to continue our journey of faith with determination. And then real quickly, I know we're out of time. But in, in the last few verses of our, of our passage, verses 12 and 13... These really familiar phrases come up. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is the discerning of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom he must give an account. We know those verses. Maybe you've quoted those verses and memorized those verses. Those are talking about the word of God. But we very seldom connect it to the argument that's happening. What did he just say before this? Strive to enter his rest so that you don't have that same heart of unbelief. For... The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We can sum up verses 12 and 13 this way. Verse 12, the word of God reveals your heart. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, the eyes of God sees your heart. The eyes of God see your heart. So these truths answer two problems. Problem number one, if we look at these commands to fear, to strive, you might say, I can't know my heart. How, How do I know? How do I discern my own heart? Answer, God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. As you're called to fear and to strive, to ask yourself, do I have that evil, unbelieving heart? Or if I have, do, I, if, do I possess faith or do I just profess faith? It is God's word that, that pierces, that reveals, that shows where your heart is. And then verse 13, where it talks about how God's eyes see everything, it, it, it refutes the lie that I can keep this hidden. I can just continue along for the ride. I can just keep on doing, going through the motions, acting like a Christian, saying all the Christian things, when in my heart I know I don't, I don't 
I don't buy this. God sees your heart. God sees everything. All things are exposed before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. And he points ahead to that future accounting where we will stand before God someday. And he knows our hearts. God knows your heart better than you do. God's word has the powerful ability to cut through the self-deception of your heart. If you're just along for the ride, then you should fear. You may trick other people, but you can't trick God. If your faith in Jesus Christ is your faith in Jesus Christ, are you earnestly pursuing him? Are you continuing and abiding in Christ because he is better than anything? Don't look away. Don't turn from him. Strive. Pursue him. You know, these last two lessons have been a little bit more serious. But sometimes we need a serious message. Right? If you're standing on top of the high chair, doing a little dance, you need to have a little less confidence. You need to fear. You need to take things seriously. If you've never been confronted with the danger of unbelief, and if we are never pushed to take our faith seriously, then it's very easy for us to continue in self-deception. If you truly don't possess a heart of faith, if your testimony is one where you're just kind of doing it because that's what you're supposed to do, you haven't embraced Christ for yourself, then without these warnings, you'll just continue cruising. These warnings are all connected back to what is said in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3, which we saw near the beginning of our series. It says this, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And, and, and I want to close by, by saying, you know, if, if you do profess faith in Christ, if you, if you claim him as your Savior, and you, might, and, and you experience a little lack of confidence in these last two lessons, maybe even an uncertainty, some of us are prone to introspecting and, and, and just questioning ourselves all the time. Um, our next passage points us to an incredible source of confidence. Because truly, if it were up to us, we should feel no confidence at all. But in the very next verses, after it tells us to fear and to strive, he points our attention to Jesus. Let's just look at those last few next verses, just, just in closing. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we have, do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our confidence because he came. Remember, he entered this world and he accomplished this rescue mission and he's our great high priest and he earned salvation for us so that we could have confidence in him. We should fear if we don't possess faith in Christ, if we're just cruising. But if you have professed faith and you believe it and you've embraced Christ as your Savior, confidence comes from looking to Jesus, your great high priest, who has done all the work for you. And you can hold fast to your confession because of what he did. And that's what we're going to look at next time. So are we there yet? No. So look ahead to the promises. Look ahead to Christ. And if you have an evil, unbelieving heart, if, if you're just along for the ride, but you haven't bought into the message, you need to fear. You need to take this seriously. Because God cannot be lied to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. We thank you so much for... Uh, your word and how it confronts our hearts and shows us where we fall short. 
And Lord, we thank you that our confidence is in you and in you alone. Your son's going to be